when it came time to go look for a new place, that's when uh, it started to become apparent that things were pretty expensive and it's getting harder. Even with a good-paying job, or at least what I considered to be a good-paying job, to, to live out on your own within the city limits. This is the Seattle Growth Podcast. I'm Jeff Schulman, and today's episode is going to take a closer look at the effect of Seattle's rising rents on the lives of some of its workers. Today's episode also features an in-depth interview with City Council Member Shama Sawant. Shama is the first socialist city council member in Seattle in over a century. She will share her ideas on how to help renters in Seattle. Today's podcast is just one part of the journey into the minds of residents, businesses, and city leaders about how growth affects their lives. Previously on the Seattle Growth Podcast, you heard from Chris DeVore, who chairs Seattle's Economic Development Commission. As you experience growth, there's both real gaps in terms of opportunity and, the, and there's the, the bad feeling that happens when there's a group of people that clearly are, are you know, winning or advancing in the economy and others that are struggling. You heard from Rob Wasser of Prospera Real Estate. If I go back to February 2012, um, at that point in time, there was only 359 sales and there was 1,200 active listings. February 2016, there were 408 closed sales of single-family houses. And as of what would have been March 1st, there would have only been 452 listed actively for sale and available. Uh, So things have changed dramatically. And in last week's episode, we looked at the rising challenges of homelessness in Seattle. You heard from Ty Sanders, who lives on the streets of Seattle. Uh, I just hope the, the city continues to grow and, you know, keep on giving people the opportunity, you know, to uh, put themselves in a better situation, you know what I mean, and, and let everybody eat on all levels. You heard from Stu Tanquist, who lives in Tent City 7. People naturally have the kind of us versus them mindset. That's how we're wired. And they view us as a them without realizing that we're all us. One big thing, and they're going to be looking for Tent City, and, and, and I am so thankful that, that this exists. And you also heard from Marty Hartman, executive director of Mary's Place, which recently formed a partnership with Amazon to transform an abandoned building into a temporary family shelter. We can end this if we work together. It's not one nonprofit. It's not won't be one city, one county, or one corporation that will do it. But we will do it because we come together to be in relationship with each other and help our neighbors in need. Though growth is bringing opportunities to the people of Seattle, there are still challenges. Challenges for those hoping to buy a home and challenges for those struggling to put a roof over their head. As we transition to this episode, we examine the challenges for those who seek to rent in Seattle. Renter-occupied housing units represent 51.9% of the housing stock in Seattle, and our city earned number one in at least one category, fastest rising rents. According to Zillow, rents increased 9.7% from June 2015 to June 2016, which was highest in the nation. And while the numbers tell part of the story, I wanted to get the story of people whose lives these numbers affect. I ventured across Seattle to hear people's stories, and I met with Carrie, who experienced firsthand rising rents. Carrie, do you mind telling us a little bit about yourself? Um, my name's Carrie. Uh, I've lived in Seattle my whole life. I'm a chef. Um, you have been in Seattle uh, all your life? Mm-hmm. Why stay, stay in Seattle? Um, I mean, I love Seattle just as far as like the culinary scene. It's 
it's a really great city for food. Um, but I mean, I definitely would like to get out of Seattle just because I've lived here my whole life and rent is just getting to be like ridiculous for living on your own as one person. But I was living in Boward for the past like two years, but I injured my leg and was out of work for like two months. So I'm actually staying with my parents right now trying to save enough money to move out so I can continue living on my own without roommates and stuff. So what's your typical day? My typical day... When you wake up, which job you go to um, first, how long it takes you to get there? So Monday through Friday, I wake up and I work from 7.30 to like 3.30 and then... 7.30 a.m. Yeah. to 3.30 p.m. Yeah, and then on Friday, I go from my first job to my second job from like 5 to... 10.30 or 11, 11, depending on how busy it is. And then Saturday and Sunday, I work from like 3 to 1.30 in the morning at my second job in Boward. And that's, yeah. So nobody could accuse you of not working hard. Yeah. <laughs> that's what you're getting at. How long were you in Ballard for? Uh, like two and a half years. Uh, what yeah. happened uh, from the when you moved to Ballard to when you moved out? Did you notice any changes? Um, a lot of large, very expensive condos, um, a huge increase in my rent. When I moved in, it was eight ninety five, and then the next year it went up to nine twenty five, and then it went to nine seventy five, and then the last time my rent got raised, which I did not receive any 60-day notice about, it was going to be a $200 increase. And so that happened right around when I fucked my leg up. So it was kind of good-ish timing to get out of there because I was living in a 400-square-foot studio, and that is not worth $1,300, plus all the utilities. And did it have parking? or no. did, So you had to pay for parking, or you parked well, on the street? I don't have a car, so okay. it wasn't an issue for me. But yeah, people who did have cars needed to park on the street or wherever they can find it. So as a chef, where obviously a lot of people like to go eat, it's hard now for you to be able to stay in Seattle to provide that. that. Yeah, I mean, as a cook, you generally are like overworked and underpaid. It's not like something you go in to make a lot of money. Um, so yeah, like it's hard to like have your own apartment um especially with all the growth with all the amazon people and everybody from california moving up here like it's just getting like unattainable to live on your own in uh, in a decent area now with all that growth and all the the people that you just mentioned is that a, having an impact on the demand for chefs so are there more restaurants and um, more people there's like there's been a shortage of line cooks um, in Seattle and from what I'm hearing all over the country, probably because we're not making enough money. Um, and with the minimum wage going up here in Seattle, like it's making everything else more expensive, especially rent. And it's all these like huge new condos that are starting at like 14, 1500 for studios so so have you seen your wages go up though as there's this shortage no so wages are somewhat flat or going mm -hmm. up a little bit not not enough like some 
places are starting cooks at $15 an hour, like Tom Douglas. Um, and I work there, and you start at 15 which is nice. But then servers are, like, cooks are working, like, 10 to 13 hours a day making that, and servers are working, like, six-hour shifts, taking home, like, $300 in a day, plus minimum wage is $12. So... In terms of that, like, no, we're not, I don't think the back of the house is, like, fairly compensated. Have you switched jobs, or have you been kind of staying with the a similar, the same place? Uh, no, I've switched jobs, and because I have, like, pretty good experience, I've been able to somewhat maintain um, the amount of money I was making around, like, 15, but a lot of places, if you go online, are trying to pay people like ten dollars an hour which is both and it's under minimum wage but i would say the average wage for a cook is around 13 okay. which is ridiculous when minimum wage is 12 dollars like i don't i don't know i don't i don't get how that all works out you were raised in seattle you loved it at at one point, you wanted to be here I for mean, a while. What did like, you love about it at that I, point? I love Seattle. It's home, but just the city, I feel like the city's starting to have less and less character, like all the new condos and all the buildings, small businesses getting torn down because, like, property management companies are building these huge, like, apartment buildings and stuff, and they're all getting filled up by a lot of, like, tech people moving up here from like Amazon and Google and stuff. Have you seen any other changes uh, in the food scene in particular where, where um, you're professionally? I think the food scene is Seattle's becoming is like definitely on the map of like a culinary city now. So in terms of like food and the industry that I'm in, like Seattle is an awesome city. Like the Northwest has amazing produce and like agriculture. Um, and I like supporting that, uh, but it's just it's just so expensive here now. Like it's comparable to like New York and California. One of my brothers lives in New York, and one of the rent he's paying is very comparable to you know apartments here. Going forward in your life, do you anticipate just moving out and still working in Seattle, or do you think you would work and move somewhere else? Uh, I'm. I don't know, I'm actually kind of trying to figure that out right now as I save money if I want to move out and stay in Seattle or if I want to like make a move somewhere else that's more affordable. And what cities do you feel offers the same things that you love about Seattle but that become maybe more livable? Um, well, most of the cities I actually want to live in are all the most expensive cities in the country, but... I've been interested in moving to like Austin, Texas, because it's a liberal, probably one of the only liberal areas in a <clears throat> Texas. They have like a cool food scene. So that's what I've been looking at mostly is Austin. As you're at this inflection point in your life where you're thinking about possibly moving um, and you're seeing some of the negative things that you've mentioned about Seattle, uh, most notably, obviously, your ability to, to live. Uh, mm -hmm. Are there any positive changes that you've seen in your years here that, that you enjoyed? Mm, certain areas are starting to get cleaned up a lot more, like Broadway, Capitol Hill area um, is getting cleaned up a bit. The University District seems to be getting cleaned up 
a little bit. Um, and when you say cleaned up, do you mind just kind of expressing a little bit about what? Just what you I mean, mean by... you don't see as many homeless kids or people on the street. It, there's a lot more like new restaurants and like nightlife and things going on, um, but uh, in turn more expensive too. Right. Okay, so that's kind of a trade-off yeah. there, yeah. If you were able to talk to the mayor, is there anything that you would like to see them do that would make your life more livable here in Seattle? Rent control and, like, a lot of people, including myself, like, depend on buses that are no longer running. Like, to get down, like, luckily I don't work downtown anymore. I used to have four buses that took 15 to 20 minutes to get downtown and now they're all cut and now there's one bus I can take that goes through here, through Wallingford, through Fremont, through Queen Anne and that's it. I would like to see more of the buses come back but obviously like sound transit so that's probably why they're cutting the buses but rent control. When you say rent control, maybe describe a little bit more of how that would look like. I mean I don't understand how the last time my rent got raised it was 50 bucks which is reasonable and then the next time it gets raised to like $200, I don't see why there's that much of an increase in the rent. And it's just not like attainable. And I don't want to work this many hours for the rest of my life. Like, so I don't know. There's just not a lot of affordable housing. Any other parting thoughts on how Seattle's growth has changed your life? I feel like the city is becoming less diverse. Thank you so much, Carrie. Thank you. Really appreciate it. I met with Steve Smith at the NAR Bar in the University District. I am at the NAR with Steve Smith. Yes, sir. Uh, welcome. Thanks for sitting down. Absolutely, Jeff. Do you mind just telling me a little bit about yourself? Uh, I run a small construction company. We do hardscapes. I live here in the greater Seattle area. Uh, can you just tell us what Hardscapes is? Uh, Hardscapes is where I'm the guy that comes in and does your deck or your uh, stone patio, gazebo, trellis, vine trellis, arbors, stone patios, concrete walls, whatever, retaining wall, you know, anything anything that's uh, technical outside outside of your house. Do you have a team or do you do all the work yourself? I have, a, I have a, an employee, one employee with me, yeah. The majority is myself alone. So how do people find out about you? Uh, I'm online through an ad agency called uh, Home Advisor. If I want to hire you, uh, so I've got a new patio, mm -hmm. I'll send you an email, you'll come out, give me a bid. Do you give yes. estimates? And uh, yeah, well, um, what you do is you contact through Home Advisor or, um, or uh, House Smith is another ad agency I go through, and um, I get your contact information, and I come out for free of charge to give you an estimate, and I have to pay for the right to, to meet you and get your address and your phone number. And then they do all the background checks and make sure I'm legit and whatnot. What's a typical day? How long do you spend doing that in a day? Um, I'll spend the morning working at the site and then spend the latter half of the day doing estimates or winding down from a day of work, depending on what day it is. But uh, uh, typically I'll go on uh, weekends and uh, interview or uh, find, I'll, typically I'll go on, on the weekends to, to, get, to get work because I'm obligated to the client during the week to get the work done. So typically weekends are spent uh, searching out new new projects. And what's a typical job? How long does that take you? A uh, typical job would be about two weeks. And then how long between jobs? Uh, it could be anywhere. I usually do about four estimates a month, and I usually win half 
Um, that's an average. You know, sometimes I'll do six estimates and win two two out of the six. So um, a good portion of my, my nights are spent doing estimate work. So right now, uh, do you ha- are you on a job? Yes. Or, and do you have another job booked for after that one? Yes. And do you have another job booked for after no, that one? No. It's not. It's not untypical for um, someone to, to flake or you know bail out at the last minute. You know because they can't get their finances together or whatnot. Um, tax time is usually a good time of year for me because people get their returns, and they want to spend money on their house. So. How long have you been doing this? How long have you had your heart? I've been in business for seven years this year. Yeah. So seven years, that means you started in some lean times I sto- here in Seattle. I started during the, the, um, the, the I started in 2009 during the, um, the, 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 the great recession. Yeah, the yeah. Great, the implosion. Great I like that one better, the more <laughs> technical term. Yeah. And actually it was a good time to get your feet, feet in the door. Um, I've noticed since the economy has gotten better, it's a little bit tougher to find work because you have a lot more competition. Lean times when you're, when you're a new business owner, you, you tend to bid really low. You tend to win a lot of projects. So as the economy progresses, you tend to lose out on a lot of projects. And I have a lot more competition uh, these days. In the last five years, how would you say your business has changed? It's, it's changed. It's been a little bit tougher. Um, tougher being traffic. Um, I have a lot less places to park if I work in the inner city. Um, uh, taxes have gone up. The B&O tax is outrageous. I'm almost thinking about uh, registering in another county. <laughs> I haven't quite done that yet, but uh, I'm registering King County. But um, I've been told that if I register in, in say, Snohomish or a subsequent county north or south of south of me, I could get a pretty big tax break on the B&O tax, business operations tax yep. for King County. Demand for your services has gone up? Luckily, one thing is uh, reputation builds. Um, reputation builds enough where I can keep busy, but... Um, it's tough. It is a tough, little tougher to find work. Yeah, so I have it. Uh, it's been flooded with competition, to be quite honest. So, you get called out. You're one of four or five people who get, or maybe three, give an estimate for the for the for my ad agency, so to speak. Yeah. Okay. What they do is they they'll um they'll um uh, a certain client will will come in with um an idea to do say a stone patio and. Uh, um, I'll be one of four guys that get sent out the uh, information, and it's up to me to win that bid. But the other, the three other guys have to. Those are my. That's my competition. So we all compete. Usually, the client will pick the middle estimate. You know, okay. uh, the high end's too high, or the low end. You mean it means the guy doesn't know what he's doing. <laughs> you know, so yeah, <laughs> you know. Um, you spend the weekends doing estimates. Yes, and sir. you're saying parking's an issue. What, what do you do? A, parking's a huge issue. Um, a lot of my operation costs will actually go to uh, parking in the greater Seattle area or uh, uh, tolls. And it's a, it's a, it's, yeah, it's a, it's a new thing to contend with um, for the bottom line. Yeah. How much time do you think it takes you to go to a place? I'll, I'll the burn. Traffic? That's a great question, and I have that right on the top of my head. Um, I'll burn at least sixty dollars a week pursuing projects that I don't that I that's not a guaranteed I win. Um, and then you invest your time into doing the estimates for the clients and. You know, that they don't like the, the, they might not like the look on your face when you show up there that morning or they might have a bad day. Yeah. They'll just cancel it all together. So you kind of burnt, burnt that time and fuel to do it. But that's part of the job. Yeah. And I, I yeah, that's the way it's been for seven years. That's but the way it goes. recently, parking's become more difficult parking, at the job site? Parking has been very difficult. I've had parking tickets recently. A lot of the bike lanes have been moved in here and um, it's encroaching on, um, it's, it, it's actually, it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's not a bad thing for, for people to get off 
the fossil fuels or whatnot, but with the price of gas going down, it's kind of ridiculous how they have a lot of dedicated bike lanes when there's not enough parking for, for uh, contractors such as myself. Is there an area in the city that's uh, more prevalent yeah. than oh, others? Oh, yeah. Well, let's start here. We're in the University District right now, correct? Okay. Yeah. You can see right out here, um, if, if the guys on the radio can hear us, about 200 yards behind us, that's all been eaten up by uh, bicycle lanes. So yeah. you used to be able to park there. Yeah, yeah. I used to be able to park there and, and service clients that on Brooklyn, but I can't do that anymore. Um, same thing with Montlake. Um, Capitol Hill is another issue. And um, uh, Magnolia is starting to become the same way. I have a feeling Magnolia and Beacon Hill will be the last places to be um, uh, gentrified, so to speak, for uh, bicyclists. Have you changed your behavior as to who you'll do estimates for and where you'll do them? I have, yeah. In fact, I'll only do it on the weekends because trying to get there on a, on a weekday to fight traffic, I, I'm obligated to be at my client's site eight hours a day plus. And um, if, if I can't meet someone on time when I say I'll be there because of traffic and whatnot, I, I won't do it because it's not fair to the client and it's not fair for me. So I'll... Typically, I'll use my entire weekend just to meet new clients. So now you're working instead of five days a week, seven days a week. You, yes, exactly. And it's a crunch. Um, you know, and especially I'm a fair weather worker. Everything I do is outside. So weather is everything. Um, I hate to waste a full, nice, sunny weekend when I could be wrapping a job up for an anxious client that wants to have, say, a dinner party on Sunday night in their new backyard that I build for them. But I have to maybe obligate that time for, so my guy has another job to go to so he can feed his children. And so the the person who works with you, are you his sole source of employment, or does he have I, several gigs? He's I'm yeah I'm the sole source of employment. Yeah. So you're responsible not just for yourself yep. but for him. Yeah. And as yeah. it's a it's very yeah. I, so at some point, if I have a larger job, I'll have to get extra labor, and then I'm responsible for extra guys. Okay. Yeah. So I kind of tailored my work down to just doing, kind of being a minimalist, so to speak. Um, yeah, not only, not only that, I, I can't even live in. I can't even afford to live in the place where I build, build for people anymore. So, tell me, where did you used to live? I used to live in North Seattle, um, right in the uh, kind of uh, North Wedgwood area. And how Very, long were you there? I was there for seven years. And when you first moved there, what was your rent? Do you recall? Uh, it was about fifteen, fourteen eighty, and it stayed that way for about six years, six and a half years, and then it went up, and we couldn't afford it. So. And so, what year did it go up? Uh, it'd be about one year ago today. Okay. Yeah. So one year ago today, you were paying roughly fifteen hundred. Yeah, and roughly. Then yeah. What, what did it get raised to? It, it raised about twenty-five to thirty-five percent. So uh, it depends on what you want to pay for uh, amenities. She did provide some of the amenities for us, but um, the rent basically jumped from fourteen eighty to uh, I think sixteen ten, and then she didn't offer some of the amenities anymore that she used to have with it. So we were priced out. Where did you go when you were priced out? Yeah, I moved to Kenmore, and I have a house in Kenmore, but I don't have a garage anymore or whatnot. You know, took a dive back, which kind of shrunk down my business a little bit. But I can't store any lumber for the next project that comes up in the future. Everything, it, go, everything goes to the dump. Okay. <laughs> so I don't have anywhere to put it. Yeah. Oh, okay. How much uh, distance-wise did that add to your trip to Seattle? It's not that far away mileage-wise, but... Um, because of the uh, new tolls and whatnot on 405, um, everything's backed up on my, my main road back into Seattle. So it, it, it can take me an hour to get from my house to, say, the university district on an average morning. So yeah. even though you're not necessarily paying the tolls, the people who don't want to pay the tolls are now on your uh, road. Yeah, exactly, yeah, on my highway, 522, okay. which is basically from North Seattle to Kenmore. Yeah. How else would you say the last five years uh, 
the growth in Seattle, how would it affect you professionally? People might say, wow, if you're in hardscapes and there's so many people here moving and rehabbing houses, that's life's got to be for, great for you. That's a good thing for me. And Absolutely. Ha have you seen your, your wages go up? I haven't seen the wages go up. What I've seen is more competition, is more people doing what I do to, to take, take in the influx of, uh, of uh, new people coming to Seattle. And it, it's, it's definitely not a bad thing, but it's a bad thing because I have more competition than okay. I did maybe five years ago. And so your annual take is not as... I, I believe, um, I, uh, well, I filed an extension this year, so I don't know. Okay. <laughs> but but um, uh, the last year, I think I grossed, oh gosh... The, between the net and gross, I, it's maybe sixty-eight thousand, and that's working with one other employee who is part-time. Okay. So I mean, it's not a bad take, but yeah, it's and, not a good take either. And my first two years in business was over a hundred, so yeah. So I mean, that kind of tells you right there. So yeah. back when it was in the lean years, where we would from yeah. the outside think I had you're no not doing well, I had no competition. Back okay. Then. Yeah. And so at that point, you're making a hundred. Yeah. Exactly. And then now, where we're thinking you're doing great. No, I'm not. No, because I have so much more competition. I have, uh, my taxes gone up, and then I have yeah more challenges on the road, especially with parking. Okay. Yeah. Uh, if you were in control of this city, and you could make it more livable for you or or people like you. Uh, however you want to define that, what would you do? What would you change or that's a, keep? That's a good question. Um, that's a very good question. I, you know, I, I wouldn't really wouldn't change a thing. I like everything that's going on here. And, and so, yeah. so you were priced out. So you had definitely. Uh, you lived here in Seattle for how many years before you lived so in that house? I grew up on the east side of Lake Washington, so I grew up in Renton. Okay. And I moved out here probably about 15 years ago to Seattle. Okay. So, yeah. I've been living comfortably in Seattle until recently. Okay. So you were yeah. 14 years in Seattle. Oh, yeah. Had a beautiful house, mm -hmm. a thriving business, and then your rent got to a point where you couldn't be there anymore. Exactly. Uh, exactly. Do you see that as a bad thing? Yes. And so is there anything you think could be done to prevent that the, from the, happening? Okay. The, here's, you got to remember that with Seattle. There's a burst. There's a bubble and there's a burst. This bubble will burst once again, and it's going to happen every 10 years. There's going to be, it's just like the old, when I grew up when I was a kid, there was a billboard, a famous billboard when Boeing left. It says, turn out the lights. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's ebb and flow in here, right? So, I mean, once, I, I guarantee that this is all going to change again and, I'll be living in Seattle once again, and you know, you know what I'm saying. I don't know how to articulate it quite well, but yeah, it's, a, it's an ebb and flow, and um, not, yeah, yeah. Steve, really appreciate it. Thank man. you, thank you, you, Jeff. Again. Awesome. I headed to City Hall to meet Shama Sawant. As I asked her about growth in Seattle, she shared her passionate views on how she believes the city should respond to rising rents. I am here in Seattle City Hall with Seattle City Council Member Shama Sawant. Shama, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Uh, so before I begin, I want to thank you for your service. Uh, I know it's no small sacrifice to be a public servant uh, to the people of Seattle, so thank you. And in light of that, I, I thought before we got started, I'd ask you a little bit about what's your motivation for serving the people of Seattle? Well, unlike most politicians, I'm, I'm not a career politician. I'm, I'm an activist with Socialist Alternative, which is a nationwide organization of social and economic justice activists. And I used to be an economics professor. And I 
ran for office because we in our organization, Socialist Alternative, collectively decided that we sh uh, post-Occupy, we should run a real campaign just to demonstrate to working people with, who, with whom we're building a movement what it would look like to have a real uh, candidate who takes no money from corporations and is single-mindedly uh, devoted to uh, you know, building mass movements and using their position to further the cause of social and racial and you know uh, other forms of justice, including environmental justice, and uh, our organization democratically chose me to be the candidate, and I think uh, that's a good model for independent politics going forward, where you want people who are elected to public office, who are truly dedicated to a cause that they represent, not to further their own personal interests, and in, in and in that spirit, actually. Even though the city council pays every council member a six-figure salary, I take home only $40,000, and the rest after taxes is donated to social justice movements. As you've been a part of the government and a part of the social movement here in Seattle, as things have picked up economically, what changes have you seen that uh, are negative? Well, if you look around the, the landscape of Seattle, you know, something that would not be obscure in any way is how unaffordable Seattle is becoming. Everybody, I think, uh, unless you're extremely wealthy, would agree that we're slowly getting priced out of wherever we are. And by we, I mean middle class people, working class people, extremely poor people who are working hard but you know, get paid so little that they're struggling to get by. And we're seeing these conditions despite the fact that in 2014 we won the historic victory of the $15 an hour minimum wage and that wage is being phased in, which means that the lowest paid workers right now in Seattle actually are getting paid more than they were because of our you know, in incredible victory of our movement. But that, but that is not uh, enough. In fact, that was only the first step of what we need to change. And what we are experiencing is that the city, like many metropolitan areas around the United States, it's not an isolated phenomenon, is becoming more and more controlled by massive corporate interests, you know, behemoths like Amazon and Vulcan, big developers, Wall Street real estate speculators descending here. You don't know who, you don't know who they are. You know, as far as we know, they're nameless and faceless, but these are multi-billionaires who are uh, investing in every inch of real estate of the city and the overall outcome, we can discuss the economics of it, but the overall outcome is that uh, people are getting priced out of Seattle. And you might, you might, one might think about this as simply supply and demand. And a lot of people will say, well, you know, isn't just, isn't economics all about supply and demand? And my response to that, and that's an important thing to consider, is that yes, it, there is supply and demand. So there, there is that dynamic for sure on, in a capitalist economy, and that makes sense. But the question we have to ask is not, are prices going up when demand is going up? Of course, that's true. The question is, why are prices skyrocketing? That part is not explained simply by looking at demand and supply. That part is explained by the fact of balance of power in in any market. So wa what wages low, low wage workers earn really depends on how, how much they're uh, able to fight for. Similarly, how much rent tenants end up paying in a metropolitan area is partly a question of supply and demand, obviously, but also it's a question of how much power do big developers have. And that's why one of the things we're trying to do through my office is fight for tenant rights and rent control. 
And so can you talk a little bit more specifically about some of the things you'd like to see happen to protect the people of Seattle? Yes. First of all, we need to make sure that all labor laws are followed. So if you look at Seattle, we have laws on the books for paid sick and safe leave. We have laws on the books now for phasing into $15 an hour. We have laws on the books against wage theft. But there is massive flouting of these laws. So one major development that has happened because of the overall activism that has been on the rise in Seattle, which Socialist Alternative has been part of, the labor movement has been part of, is the establishment of the Office of uh, Labor Standards. And right now we're talking about making big business pay to fund that office. And I think that's a very important step that needs to happen this year. It can happen, but people need to be engaged in in the political discourse of the city. But the big uh, aspect of what needs to happen in Seattle is to make housing affordable. And a big part of that is making rent affordable because, uh, you know, a significant number of people, I would say over 50%, are renters. And the way the market works, too, is if you have laws to ensure that tenants are not gouged in their rent, meaning rent should go up uh, over time to keep up with the price index and to keep up with increased costs of maintenance and all of that. But if there are laws on, on the city's books to make sure that rent is not skyrocketing, then it stabilizes the lives of a lot of families. And that also has spillover effects on property rates in general. And so if you ask people, what is it, what is it that in Seattle, you know, ask ordinary people, you know, what is it that you need, you think urgently needs to change in Seattle to make the city livable? They will say housing, I would, I would bet housing is probably the first thing that will come up in their mind. So I think uh, fighting for uh, a, f a full-fledged tenant's bill of rights, which my office is doing this year, and also for rent control is extremely critical. And we also need to talk about transit. I mean, it's a dual problem that people are facing. On the one hand, uh, and it's a double whammy, really, because on the one hand, you're, you're being, and that's a very American expression. It's very funny. But it's true. It sort of captures the essence of what's happening to people. People are getting priced out of the city center and are having to commute long distances. But at the same time, there is, in spite of the transportation levy and so on, overall, over, over decades, over the last two decades, you've seen massive deinvestment in metro services, you know, other bus services and so on. And the Capitol Hill Light Rail Station is a great step forward. I love riding the light rail, but it's not enough. What we need, what Seattle needs is to have a real tax on millionaires to fully fund metro so that we have a city that has a real mass transit system. And what I mean by real mass transit is specifically this. Think of a single mom who has to wake up every morning, early every morning, make breakfast for her kids, drop her kids off at school, or see them off at the bus stop, you know, school bus stop, go to work, uh, you know, get out of work in the evening, pick her kids up, go to the grocery store, come home, make dinner, supervise her kids' homework, put them to bed, and do all of that over, all over again the next day. If she, if this single mom can do all of this without having to own a car, then we would have arrived. Meaning no 40-minute waits, no three buses to get to work, you know, which means that feeder routes have to be expanded, which means that frequencies on arterials need to be expanded, which means late night bus routes. I mean, these are, this is not rocket science. What we need is funding. And so how do you respond to critics or concerns that if we tax millionaires, that the millionaires will go somewhere else and they will not gain the economic surplus that we have now? 
Well, my first response is, you know, this is Seattle. Everybody wants to be here. Look at the city. It's gorgeous. Where would they go? You know, everybody wants to be here. But that's, that's more of a sort of a comedic answer. A more serious answer is, as an economist, I can tell you that every tax on high-income or high-wealth individuals, you know, look across history. And in fact, America used to have a much higher overall, you know, federal in, you know, tax on wealthier individuals, a, a much more stringent corporate tax that came out of the successful labor movements in, during the Second World War era. Uh, so if you look at all of those, all of that history, you will see that there's not a, a single piece of evidence, statistically significant evidence, that shows that when millionaires were taxed, there was a millionaire flight. Such a thing has never happened. There was a tax on millionaires instituted in the state of New Jersey uh, several years ago, and economists have studied that. And that was part of what I looked at in, when I was in graduate school. And we found that there was no statistical evidence to show that there was any kind of millionaire flight. And the uh, and this point that, well, millionaires will leave is similar to what people were saying. Well, if you increase the minimum wage to 15, all the businesses are going to leave. Guess what? Businesses haven't left. Actually, what's happening, and this was this was reported not by a socialist. Don't take my word for it. Take the word of the Restaurant Association, which bitterly fought against the minimum wage increase. They are themselves reporting that what's instead happened is that the restaurants in the periphery of Seattle, where the law does not apply, are themselves, by themselves, having to consider increased wages for their workers because they're not competing for talented workers. Because the workers are saying, well, I'm going to work in Seattle because I get a higher wage. That's the real economic effect of improving living conditions. And the last point I would make is this, and this is a point I made during the minimum wage struggle as well, when you know when people said, well, isn't is, this is going to be apocalypse, uh, apocalyptic, basically. Those, those are the same things you'll hear when we talk about millionaire's tax as well. My response is this. One is that there's no statistical evidence to show that that happens. But furthermore, if it were true that this economy is so fragile that making basic corrections to provide semi-decent living standards to a vast majority of people who go to work every day and make the city run is going to crumble this economy, then what on earth are we defending? Such an economy is indefensible. I mean, I personally believe that capitalism is indefensible. But even if people don't agree with me on that it, and only are willing to fight for social reforms, not for systemic change, then that's the question we should ask. If fighting for even basic reforms was going to crush this economy, then what exactly are we defending? It's, uh, it's time to talk about another economy. Uh, can you talk a little bit about anything else that you've seen Seattle lose as, the, as we've gained people and money as a whole? Well, we are definitely, I mean, related to uh, all the phenomena we, we already talked about, what's happening is also Seattle is losing what makes it Seattle. I mean, what people love about Seattle is partly the, the, lands, the natural landscape, but for a lot of people, what matters is the diversity, you know, racial diversity, also diversity in various backgrounds, Capitol Hill, having a rich history, for example, a rich history of LGBTQ activism, a rich history of artists and artists being politically active in the 1980s. You know, our, our Capitol Hill was part of the whole tapestry of history of fight against HIV AIDS and the fight for gay rights, like basic recognition as human beings. All of this, we stand to lose 
if the city continues in this trajectory of you know becoming unaffordable for the vast majority of people it, this is pretty dire and if you look at the central district for example it used to be majority black population and now they are a very slim minority and very soon it's going to be the city is going to be homogeneous and not just racially but primarily in terms of wealth and because in america wealth and you know class and race have such a strong correlation it effectively means that unless we want seattle to be a homogeneous city made of extremely wealthy people with really having lost its culture and its soul then we have a huge thing to fight for meaning to make it affordable what are your thoughts on other ideas about how to make the city affordable such as increased development in single family residential areas and um, increase uh, building heights and, mm. and zoning oh yeah i'm i'm absolutely for it i mean i grew up in mumbai i uh, i want dense neighborhoods i actually just at a personal level i feel much more at home in brooklyn for example in 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 the sense that it's dense and i want that density in seattle so i'm very much uh in agreement with those who are arguing that we need more density and i think that any reasonable person would recognize that we need density and and also my personal vision and i don't expect that everybody every single person would agree with me but my personal vision given my background of having grown up in a big city is to have seattle be a walkable a dense walkable city with real walkable neighborhoods meaning uh, if we can design neighborhoods neighborhoods such that no matter where you lived within a certain walkable radius you would have clinics you would have libraries you would have schools you know from everywhere from pre-k to high schools you would have parks you would have restaurants nightlife uh you know jogging tracks everything and that's a really uh, that's a very uh, it's a vision worth fighting for all i'm saying is that it, that vision cannot be attained only by advocating for increased heights because at the same time you need affordability so you need to fight for uh, i would want to fight for a dense walkable livable clean environmentally friendly city that's affordable and i think that you can't get one without the other that's just the reality so even if people didn't care for, about affordability and and how could you not i mean you should but even if you don't care about affordability even if you're just caring you just care about the physical characteristics what i'm saying is that you can't achieve that unless you're also fighting for affordability and here's one link why i say one link why i what uh, that exists between the two is that part of the problem is that uh, housing is simply unaffordable to a lot of people if you want to make it affordable then you have to take certain measures policy measures m- movements have to fight for those reforms and what are those reforms one is rent control but it's not just about rent control it's also about using the city's billion dollar bonding capacity to leverage it over the next say 5 decades to build thousands of city owned public hu- units of public housing which will remain affordable into perpetuity we ne- we also need to tax big developers in order to make funding available for affordable housing but these are political tasks you cannot achieve uh that vision for seattle that a lot of people want without taking a political stance against big developers against vulcan this is not a politically neutral issue it is a very politically charged issue and it requires people to take a side and a lot of working people want to take that side and in what we need is a real movement like we had around 15 dollars an hour 
uh, we've talked about what we've lost and what you would like to do to protect us from lose, uh, protect the city from losing more. Can we talk a little bit about what you believe Seattle has gained with the population growth and the economic growth? I think that uh, economic development is a good thing. I'm, I don't I don't want personally to fight for some sort of a Luddite vision of society where uh, people have minimized standards of living than could be achieved with today's technological advances. What I want is a very high standard of living in the kind of vision I was laying out for Seattle. If you don't talk about the terms in which, terms at which growth is handed down to you under capitalism, then you can only take a position of pro-growth or anti-growth under capitalism. But that's but that to me is not a meaningful position. I am not against growth. I am against capitalism. But but what that means concretely is that if we had a, an economy that was uh, organized such that working people overall had a democratic say in what should be used with the vast resources that humanity is able to produce with such high rates of productivity today, then you would have a completely different kind of growth. I don't think you could possibly exaggerate the extent to the divergence in society where a few people control, you know, sliver at the top controls everything and like puppet masters and the rest of us are just forced to go to work every day and, you know, uh, uh, struggle for scraps. I don't think you could possibly uh, exaggerate it. In fact, the reality itself, in my view, is somewhat caricaturish. I mean, that's how, that's how intense the reality is. If you accept the terms of capitalism, if you accept the terms of corporate-dominated politics, then in Seattle, the only way you can have a decent life is if you are an upper-middle-class person, if you have a six-figure salary, and even that is sometimes not enough. If you have a nice car, maybe if you're environmentally conscious, you'll, have, you'll get a Nissan Leaf or something like that. But think about the majority of working people who don't have those choices, who have to rely on a less expensive car, which is less fuel-efficient, or uh, worse yet, have no ability to own a car at all financially, and they're uh, you know forced to rely on an in insufficient metro service. And so, what I mean by uh, you know rejecting the capitalist framework and thinking of growth in a different way is that under capitalism, every individual is left to fend for themselves. And uh, you you how will you uh, how will you ever stop the juggernaut of climate change and you know pollution and traffic? I mean. Talk to any, just talk about traffic to anybody. People will just, you know, it's it's like a great conversation starter in Seattle because people are so fed up with being stuck in traffic, and that's almost universal. But what is the way to solve the problem? The way to solve the problem is not to have a few wealthy people buy Nissan Leafs. The only way you can solve that problem is you had massive investment in mass transit to, to bring it to a level of a real city, you know? But the only way to do that is to talk about taxing the wealthy. And the only way you can do that is to build mass movement. So you see how, how everything is connected. And if we had a different kind of uh, economy and society, uh, what I call socialism, and socialism in my view is simply you know having an economy where you have a democratic say in everything, then instead of spending hundreds of billions, if not trillions of dollars on a fossil fuel sector, on repaving roads that are going to be crowded in another day, and have traffic jams, snarls everywhere. Instead, say if we had a say, we would say, you know what, let's have growth, but of a different kind. Let's make sure that we have mass transit at such a level that people don't, for the most part, need to own a car. That's a high, I would say, my, the quality of our lives would soar through, this, through the roof 
if we had really high quality transit. Imagine not being able to stuck behind the steering wheel. I imagine being able to take a nap or read a book, improve your life while you're in transit. I mean, everybody wants that. The question is, how do we get it? And I don't think you can get it under capitalism. Thank Sorry you very much. Long-winded. I really appreciate you spending the time with me and sharing your perspective. And uh, good luck tackling uh, the challenges that Seattle faces uh, going forward. I really appreciate your service to the city. Thank you. You have now heard from two people whose lives have been affected by Seattle's rising rents. And you've also heard from a city council member who is proposing legislation to protect renters. How do you feel about rising rents and Shama Sawant's ideas? Share your thoughts on this episode using hashtag SeattleRenting. Next week, we explore how Seattle's growth affects its character and culture. You will hear from Hazel Margaritis. There used to be a lot of warehouses around. Um... The price per square foot was pretty reasonable before, um, generally around 70 to a dollar a square foot. Basically, the dollar per square foot has gone up. Um, availability has gone down. Um, believe it or not, uh, even though I voted for the marijuana initiative, um, I'm all for it, but that actually has taken away a lot of the warehouses. You'll hear from Dan Morgan. I definitely feel like the gentrification is, an, is a big issue here. You know, having spent most of my adult life in the Central District and watching that neighborhood change pretty drastically is, is kind of, is a little frustrating because it was a predominantly black neighborhood for all of my youth and uh, it's certainly lost a lot of its character. And you will hear from the founder of Equinox Studios, artist turned developer, Sam Farazano. Oh, it's amazing. Like when the banks asked me you know, I'm doing the pro forma and everything, and they're like, okay, well, what do you, what's your vacancy rate? I'm like, I don't have one. And they're like, what do you mean? I'm like, I don't have a vacancy rate. I have a waiting list of people to get in here. I have 50,000 square feet of people on my waiting list after I fill the next building. I could fill two more buildings, right, if I had space. The reason for that is community. The reason for that is the people. But if you don't focus on the people, if you focus on the bottom line, then you have vacancy rates and you have subway in your, in your retail space and you have dead neighborhoods. It works. I hope you'll join me next week. In the meantime, please rate this podcast in iTunes and subscribe if you haven't already.